Hello, I'm Aaron McMullen, and you are listening to Mondo Christ Almighty, a podcast dedicated to the frequently wild and weird and wonderful world of cinematic, or primarily cinematic, representations of Jesus Christ. This week, uh, I will warn you, we are dealing with some pretty strong stuff, indeed. I saw an angel close by me, in bodily form. This I am not accustomed to see, unless very rarely, though I have visions of angels frequently. It was our Lord's will, that in this vision I should see the angel in this wise. He was not large, but small of stature, and most beautiful, his face burning. I saw in his hand a long spear of gold, and at the iron's point there seemed to be a little fire. He appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart and to pierce my very entrails. When he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out also and to leave me all on fire with a great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan and yet so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that I could not wish to be rid of it. The soul is satisfied now with nothing less than God. The pain is not bodily, but spiritual. Though the body has its share in it, even a large one, it is a caressing of love so sweet, which now takes place between the soul and God, that I pray God of his goodness to make him experience it, who may think that I am lying. During the days that this lasted, I went about as if beside myself. I wished to see or speak with no one, but only to cherish my pain, which was to me a greater bliss than all created things could give me. That's a very famous excerpt from the posthumously published autobiography of the 16th century ecstatic, mystic, and agent of profound religious reform, Teresa of Avila, a Carmelite nun whose first couple decades on earth, if her writings are any indication, were spent in a sort of tug of war between her desire to please the Lord God Almighty in whatever way she could, and to feel him in whatever way she could, a preoccupation that led her to fetishize infirmary and martyrdom to a properly feverish degree, and the many temptations of the world round about. Temptations she oftentimes gave into, so she says, although she's never very specific about what form those temptations might have taken. Thankfully, a virtually never-ending procession of artists and pornographers and philosophers and poets and sibyls and seers have been attempting to fill in most of those blanks for us ever since. As she became steadier in her devotions, as she grew more confident in the power of prayer and of her own position within her order, 
as she grew more self-aware, although certainly not any less self-despising, Teresa began to experience extremely vivid visions, hallucinations, whatever, mystical interludes which would afford her any number of astonishments, ranging from terrifying glimpses of hell itself to a series of undeniably erotically charged encounters with assorted celestial beings. Now, these more racy sorts of reveries and these very suggestive chasms and ellipses have inspired everyone from Bernini to Diderot to Lacan to a British filmmaker by the name of Nigel Wingrove, who in 1989 ran with the vague implications and the very visceral language and the overwhelmingly sexual overtones peppering portions of Teresa's writings to produce a once notorious, but perhaps now uh, somewhat forgotten, uh, slab of thumping softcore non-sploitation entitled Visions of Ecstasy, in which Wingrove imagined Teresa embroiled in a spectacular metaphysical threesome with both the urges running rampant about her being, urges embodied in the figure of a naked woman who paws at her body throughout, and with Jesus Christ himself. The response to the film, predictably enough, was fairly heated, to say the least. So, in the late 1980s, blasphemy in the arts was very much on the cultural and political agenda. Blasphemy was the colour of the time. And really, if you weren't blaspheming or being blasphemed against, there was very little point in getting out of bed. It seemed that every other week, someone, somewhere, was producing something that was causing this bunch of religious zealots or the next to erupt in holy indignation. A battle commenced between the art world and the church or the synagogue or the mosque or all three that ate up most of the latter half of the decade. Artworks were destroyed, boycotts swept the lands, People were imprisoned and prices were placed upon the heads of artists who dared to transgress when it came to their utilization or evocation of objects or subjects of religious devotion. In 1987, Andre Serrano produced an astonishing photograph entitled Piss Christ, part of a series of photographs of models of various figures submerged in bodily fluids, a sequence gathered together under the title Immersions. Piss Christ was an image of a crucifix submerged in the artist's urine, and it is an uncommonly bewitching sight. The canvas dominated by these sort of deep reds and oranges and yellows, from the murk of which a bubbling Jesus Christ on the cross emerges. 
It is, for me, one of the most transcendentally beautiful images of Christ ever produced. An absolutely pitch-perfect, or pitch-perfect, if you prefer, uh, intimation of the divine in the abject, of the spirit in the flesh, or better yet, in what the flesh expunges. A no less valid, if slightly more prosaic, mode of reading the image, and one which acknowledges that Serrano is in fact a man of pronounced spiritual conviction, would be to perceive it as an attack on the commodification of spirituality. And in that respect, it brings to mind the fantastic scene in Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain, when the uh, central Christ figure wakes up screaming in a sort of warehouse filled to bursting with hundreds of garish, soulless, plastic representations of Jesus, which he soon sets about battering the blazes out of in a sort of frenzy. People of a certain religious persuasion were predictably infuriated by Piss Christ and what they perceived as an act of violent desecration on Serrano's part. To my eyes, it is anything but. As Cynthia Carr very provocatively pondered in the village voice, we must ask ourselves, has the crucifix in Piss Christ really been defiled, or has the urine been sanctified? Stephen C. Dubbin, in his book, Arresting Images, says of the piece, most viewers would likely be touched by the sense of majesty and spirituality that the photograph evokes. That is, until the appearance of the image is tempered by the reality of its execution. Serrano's piece was included in an exhibition sponsored in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, and which toured museums and galleries in Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, and most contentiously, Richmond, Virginia. Most of the furore surrounding the work, as Dubbin records, roared into life after the tour had ended, and after the piece had made that appearance in Richmond. This was mostly because it took a fair bit of time for the Reverend Donald Wildman's American Family Association to work up enough steam to spearhead an actual movement in opposition. In this, they were greatly assisted by Republican Senator Jesse Helms, who saw the piece as, quote, a sickening, abhorrent, and shocking act by an arrogant blasphemer. The results of all of this was that the National Endowment for the Arts had its funding sliced by tens of thousands of dollars and a controversial bill was passed that barred federal funding of projects deemed obscene and, quote, lacking in serious literary, artistic, political or scientific value. Piss Christ continues to outrage to this day. Galleries are picketed. In 2012, an exhibition drew protests that erupted into what the National Review described as bloody riots. The image is defaced when the opportunity arises, 
and only recently, Bill Donoghue, the president of the Catholic League, appeared on national television to say that if Serrano was killed over Piss Christ, it would be his own fault. I don't mind Mel Brooks. I don't mind edginess. I don't even mind irreverence. I do have a problem with toilet speech. When you show pictures of religious figures having anal sex, that has crossed the line. That's not Mel Brooks, okay? That's not edgy. That's filth. And I think it stopped. Now, when I say it should stop, do I want the government to stop them? No, I don't. That's the wrong remedy. But if somebody killed the guy who put the cross uh, in, the the, urine, in the urine right. and in the jar... I would be against that. You'd be, but would you say that the guy who put the urine in the jar uh, and was killed by, a, let's say, a Christian brought it on himself right, right. the way you're saying that uh, you know if he if he you know if he if he exhibited a little more narcissism I, I, i'm not going to run from it had he exercised restraint he wouldn't be dead same thing for that guy absolutely. If, if it happened to him absolutely one year after piss christ was produced another artwork was busy igniting a very similar uproar of its own this was an image of the virgin of guadalupe upon which Rolando de la Rosa, a renegade artist, according to a contemporaneous article in the New York Times, had superimposed the face and the bare breasts of Marilyn Monroe. The exhibition of the piece in the Museum of Modern Art, as that article noted, detonated a scandal that transfixed Mexico for nearly four months and prompted a heated national debate about religion, art, and the limits of free expression. The museum housing the piece was subject to sustained attacks. There were threats to blow it up or burn it down. And again, the issue of government funding for what the National Association of Parents condemned as satanic blasphemy was discussed at length. It was neither the first nor the last time that images of the Virgin of Guadalupe would be repurposed in ways deemed deeply objectionable to those of a religious bent, but the timing in this case really couldn't have been better. The same year saw the release of Martin Scorsese's hugely contentious The Last Temptation of Christ, which, like Piss Christ, as Dubbin brilliantly observed, pondered upon the question of whether or not divinity was compromised by association with banality, and which was met with boycotts and threats every direction that it turned. Uh, we won't get into that now, because Last Temptation is going to feature heavily in a future episode, but barely a month after its release, came the publication of Salman Rushdie's extraordinary phantasmagoria of a thing, The Satanic Verses, which of course led to the Ayatollah Khamenei issuing a fatwa against the author that caused him to go into hiding for most of the following decade. And again, we're seeing widespread demonstrations and protests and violence and threats of violence directed not only towards Rushdie himself, but also publishing houses and retailers and basically anyone associated with the book in any way at all. What so angered the book's opponents, or part of what so angered them, 
was the less than flattering portrayal of a character clearly modelled upon Muhammad, although here named Mahound, a pejorative term for the prophet that Christians employed throughout the Middle Ages. Add to this the apparent representation of Muhammad's wives as prostitutes, uh, the wealth of insults directed towards figures fundamental to the Islamic faith, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It also provided the inspiration for the absolutely abysmal ninth series of Curb Your Enthusiasm, for which it can probably never be forgiven. As far as the rest goes, uh, Rushdie was quoted in the Times in December 1990 as saying, quote, For over two years, I have been trying to explain that the satanic verses was never intended as an insult, that the story of Gabriel is a parable of how a man can be destroyed by the loss of faith, that the dreams in which all the so-called insults occur are portraits of his disintegration and explicitly referred to in the novel as punishments and retributions, and that the dream figures who torment him with their assaults on religion are representative of this process of initiation and not representative of the point of view of the author. Nonetheless, the fatwa remained, and remains in place to this day, even though it was officially dropped following an announcement by Iranian President Mohammad Khatami in 1998. A few months after the Satanic Verses controversy erupted, Madonna and director Mary Lambert jumped into the arena with the incendiary video for Like a Prayer, which depicted, among other things, a very intimate moment between Madonna and a statue of a saint which comes to life before her in a chapel. A lot of people misinterpreted this unidentified saint as Jesus himself, but I think it's fairly obvious that it is not supposed to be Jesus. Nonetheless, the religious right were, once again, huffing and puffing all roads and directions, arguably as riled by the fact that the supposed Jesus figure was black as anything else. As a result, Pepsi terminated a huge Madonna-fronted advertising campaign set to debut in tandem with the video, although that didn't really injure her in any way whatsoever. Uh, she still walked away with $5 million. From day one, this outrageous pop diva has sought to expand our visual horizons, often utilizing various parts of her well-toned anatomy. But now, she's even shaking up corporate America, namely Pepsi-Cola. They wanted the video and the commercial to be almost as one, so they would be forever linked. But Madonna stood up and said, there's only three things I'm interested in. Sex, religion, and death. Well, that scared the daylights out of him. <laughs> Interestingly, as all of that was going on, Mary Lambert herself was also directing a feature adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, which gets up to its own brand of mischief with Christian imagery, playing about with and distorting and perverting the notion of the resurrected son with no small degree of delight.
So this is the context into which Nigel Wingrove's Visions of Ecstasy struts out into the world. It's a very short film for a film with such a reputation, uh, it's only 18 minutes long, and it's rather disarmingly beautiful at times, and I'd say a fair bit more thoughtful than a lot of its critics give it credit for. But then very few of those critics had actually bothered to see it. The first image we are met with, underneath the opening credits, is a gorgeous shot of a moth fluttering about in flight. A neat sort of visual metaphor for Teresa herself, or Teresa's questing. A moth will always, of course, be racing towards the light. But here, there is no light. The moth is flying towards a blanket blackness from the midst of a blanket blackness. And this resonates to some extent uh, with Teresa's theology as it developed in her devotions, as she came to lean further towards what's known as apathetic theology, or negative theology. This is, quite simply, a theology which does not attribute to God any characteristics of any description, other than to acknowledge his ultimate ineffability. It is a theology which stresses darkness, silence, and passivity. Teresa was helped along this road by an uncle who, she says, presented her with a book which pleased her very much. And that book was The Third Spiritual Alphabet by Francisco de Asuna. Now, this is an extremely complex piece of work that we don't really need to sink too deeply into right now, other than to say that it draws heavily from a tradition established by the author commonly referred to as Pseudo-Dionysius or just Dionysius, uh, largely considered the father of negative theology. Dionysius utilizes a number of powerful images and allegories as he advances the notion that the movement towards God, a movement towards that which cannot ever be defined or understood or incorporated within oneself, is a movement that also necessitates the shedding of the intellect and of the senses. Dionysius talks beautifully about Moses ascending Mount Sinai, talking about how that ascent leads him upwards beyond the sensible, intelligible contemplation of God towards the darkness at the mountain's peak. A darkness that could also be described in the words of the anonymous author of another key text in the development of negative theology as the cloud of unknowing. So Teresa, although often grappling with a very effective mysticism that, yes, occupied a space beyond the realms of the intellect, again, beyond the metaphorical light, but which did not negate the spectrum of her sensorium, was nonetheless privileging will over understanding, propelling herself towards that darkness without grasping any sort of tangible, physical or intellectual hold over it. It brings to mind what Pascal, in his Pensees, 
would go on to write, uh, where he would say, quote, Unity joined to infinity adds nothing to it, no more than one foot to an infinite measure. The finite is annihilated in the presence of the infinite. Saint John of the Cross, uh, a great friend and acolyte of Teresa, would himself go on to write The Dark Knight of the Soul, which again emphasizes the unknowable, incomprehensible nature of the Almighty. It's, it's basically a lengthy poem which begins in an obscure night fevered with love's anxiety. Lines which could very well have served as an epigraph to Wingrove's film, which following this opening credits sequence proceeds under the rather ominous but disquietingly alluring rumble of Stephen Severin's propulsive synth-heavy score as we are led or pushed through what appears to be a garden or a wilderness of some sort submerged in darkness illuminated only here or there, until we arrive in a chapel-like space that could just as well be a dungeon, a candlelit environment nonetheless, dominated by a massive cross. It is at this point, however, that things take a drastic turn, away from the indistinct and the just barely perceptible to the all too visible as Teresa, played by Louise Downey, drives a nail into her palm and gets to writhing around the foot of the cross in a hundred different kinds of randy ecstasis. Soon enough, she has the half of the clothes pulled off herself, uh, she's rubbing the blood from her wound all about her body, she's overturning the candles, she's sending wine spilling from the altar to be licked off the floor. Um, the edits are quick and disorientating, uh, full of jump cuts and shots of hands raised to mouths and limbs trembling and flesh streaked with scarlet. It feels as much like a music video as anything else. Presently, into the scene crawls another woman in a similar state of undress and cast in a very striking blue light. And this, we deduce from the opening credits, is Teresa's psyche, played by Alicia Scott. Despite uh, those quite intriguing and promising opening flourishes, then, uh, Wingrove's film, It Transpires, is not especially interested in Teresa's theology or anyone's theology, negative or otherwise. It's a film that is vastly more concerned with the psychological and the physiological and the psychosexual than the spiritual. Not that the first three need negate the latter. I mean, yes, I guess we can say that like those early exponents of effective, mystical and or negative theology, Visions of Ecstasy doesn't begin to attempt to make any sort of pronouncements about God or Christ either. All that it's concerned with is what is going on in Teresa as she submits to the pounding of her own ecstasies upon her heart and upon her skin. But I think it would be a bit of a push to suggest that the film is doing a whole lot more than that.
In any case, uh, before long, Therese is hanging from a rope tied around her wrists, and she hangs there as her psyche feels about her body, uh, rubbing at her legs and various other parts of her anatomy, and fingering at her mouth and her belly button and all sorts of places. This is then intercut with shots of Teresa clambering over Christ, here played by Dan Fox. The cross is now on the floor, and Christ is on his back with his both legs raised, and Teresa begins exploring his body, as her psyche carries on exploring hers. Uh, she kisses at his wounds, she rubs at his thighs, she rubs at his chest and his arms, and eventually his face. She then straddles him and kisses him, and crucially, he kisses her back. So we've got Teresa hanging half naked, while her naked psyche kisses her in lingering close-up, and simultaneously we've got Teresa kissing Christ in lingering close-up. Uh, she fingers the wounds on his palm, or appears to, uh, she kisses his forehead and his cheek, and then suddenly we're back to her hanging there, fully robed, with her psyche lying at her feet. The darkness closes around her, and the film concludes with a final provocation on Wingrove's part, a shot of a censer swinging back and forth with incense smoke wafting round about, as if to say, yes, we may be dealing in the language of hyperbole, but really, there's not a whole lot that has gone on here that isn't going on around the fringes of any Catholic mass ever held. Basically, then, we go from incense and censors to incensed censors. Sort of. Uh, the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, did not know what to do with visions of ecstasy at all, especially at a time when debates surrounding blasphemy in the arts had reached such a frenzied pitch. Beyond this, Britain's own blasphemy laws had to be taken into account, uh, and after a series of consultations, the BBFC decided that the film could potentially fall foul of those laws, and since cutting the most contentious images would mean rendering the piece virtually unintelligible, the film was denied a certificate, making it illegal to own or sell. Much of what worried them about the film was the fact that Christ was portrayed by an actor, and that he responds to Teresa's advances. So unlike, say, the infamous Rape of Christ sequence in Ken Russell's The Devils, in which a bunch of nuns ravage an inanimate bust of Christ on the cross, a scene redacted from most prints of the film, uh, but we can't blame the BBFC for that, that's a decision that Warner Brothers made themselves, uh, the Christ in Visions of Ecstasy is very much alive and very much into whatever it is that's going on. It's not entirely clear, at least not to me, whether they are having penetrative sex or they're not, but if they're not, then they're really not very far off. 
Wingrove appealed the BBFC's decision uh, with the support of Derek Jarman, himself no stranger to controversy and no stranger to provocative, sexualized images of religious figures. And eventually, the case was brought before the European Court of Human Rights, who upheld the decision to suppress the film. It has been speculated that what really worried the powers that be was not so much the film itself, but that the case might expose those British blasphemy laws for the anachronistic, demon-haunted nonsense that they were. So the case was dealt with quickly, Wingrove's film was removed from circulation, people were prosecuted for owning copies of the thing, and Wingrove himself went bankrupt. The question of whether or not Visions of Ecstasy is blasphemous or it isn't is one that can only really be answered by whoever happens to be watching it at the time. But it is very obviously a film imbued with the air of the fantastic. Uh, a surreal, oneric vibe permeates proceedings throughout. And it is quite clear that all of this is going on in Teresa's head and heart and soul. Yes, she is straddling and kissing at Jesus, but Nigel Wingrove isn't for a moment suggesting that the literal Jesus Christ has a boner for bloodied Carmelite nuns. Torn out of context, well, those scenes perhaps tell a different story. And in fact, what all of the cases mentioned in this episode have in common is that each work was subject to the wrenching out of context of particular images or particular passages, therefore robbing them of meaning and leaving a rather large meaning-shaped hole into which could be projected anything the observer might choose to project. In his book Blasphemy, Art That Offends, S. Brent's plate uh, spends quite a bit of time grappling with the very idea of blasphemy. What is blasphemy? What does it mean? How can we recognize it? He says, and I quote, Blasphemy and sacrilege cannot be pinned down in a universal, timeless manner, but are prone to endless changes in religious meaning and through power mongering. For it is in the accusing itself, and in the greater environment in which the charges are made, that we find the profound power of blasphemy. It is one of those terms that has gained its lasting resonance, not through semantic stability, but through its instability, its endless manipulability." Unquote. What we can say, I guess, as Plate acknowledges, is that whatever it is and wherever it happens, blasphemy is going on somewhere in the collision between the sacred and the profane. And I absolutely love what he says on that too. Uh, I'm going to quote him again. He says, In relation to blasphemy, what must be accounted for is the all-important border between these poles. In its most literal definition, the sacred is that which is set apart from the profane. The sacred refers to beings, places, objects, and times which are elevated and are charged 
by divine and or human forces with power beyond that of the commonplace. The sacred has the power to bless, to cure, to make meaning and provide orientation in life, just as it has the power to kill, destroy and generally make life miserable. Consider most encounters with sacred beings found in the Jewish, Christian and Muslim scriptures. The initial meeting always results in the profane human being afraid of the sacred being. Abram's vision of the God who wishes to bless him, Mary during the angel Gabriel's annunciation, God's revelations to Muhammad in the cave on Mount Hera. Within such a sacred history, the smug contemporary bumper sticker exclaiming God is my co-pilot is as blasphemous as any crucifix submerged in urine because it does not respect the difference between the sacred and profane. Unquote. Personally, uh, my own issue with visions of ecstasy is not that it some way defiles Teresa uh, or Jesus or any other shard of the sacred in any way. It's that it is disappointingly lacking in, well, vision. I mean, really, reducing Teresa's extraordinary writings and extraordinary experiences to an elaborate wank fantasy, uh, albeit a wank fantasy that looks like it was lit by Mario Bava, even if wank fantasies is sometimes all that they ever were, betrays a pretty pedestrian reading of those texts in general, and a pretty galling lack of imagination. Uh, as far as the banning of the film goes, Wingrove himself felt that he was targeted because of those very high-profile cases that the film had emerged in the midst of, and the public outcry that accompanied each. The BBFC did not refuse a certificate to The Last Temptation of Christ, in which Christ, again, in a fantasy sequence, is seen having sex with a woman, like a prayer found... Uh, sorry, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm barging in here, well, from the future, essentially. Um, which is to say, I recorded this episode a few hours ago. But I was thinking about that, about how the BBFC did not refuse a certificate to Last Temptation, and yet essentially banned Visions of Ecstasy. And I was thinking about what separates the two. And what separates the two is that Visions of Ecstasy is, at least in part, designed to arouse. Um, so, yes, we're talking in each case, uh, Last Temptation and Visions of Ecstasy, of fantasy sequences depicting a sexually active Christ. But Scorsese isn't trying to soak your seat and Nigel Wingrove, to some extent, is. And I actually think there's something quite powerful and quite profound in that. For in that arousal, one is aligned with Teresa. There is an undeniable, visceral, mimetic bind with Teresa in her ecstasies. Or at least there's a concerted effort to establish such a bind to meld the spectator with the ecstatic 
via mechanisms of arousal and frustration. But anyway, that, that, that was just something that came into my head as I was wandering about outside. Uh, I'll let you get back now to the things that I was saying uh, earlier this afternoon. The BBFC did not refuse a certificate to The Last Temptation of Christ, in which Christ, again, in a fantasy sequence, is seen having sex with a woman, like a prayer found regular rotation on television, and for a certain percentage of the population, there was a sense that blasphemy was very much in fashion, and that the powers that be were doing very little about it. Uh, refusing a certificate to an 18-minute-long softcore arthouse fantasy picture that most people would never have seen anyway was, in effect, a load of virtue signalling on the part of the BBFC. Uh, an indication that, actually, those in positions of authority were taking all of this very seriously indeed. And here was the proof. But Wingrove certainly didn't feel that the film was blasphemous in any way. Uh, here's what he told Channel 4 a few years later. Visions didn't set out to offend. And the film was about Teresa, it wasn't about Christ. I know how to be blasphemous and offensive. Visions was not what I'd have done had I set out to do that. As far as Jesus films go, Visions of Ecstasy has its roots much less in that tradition, although there are correspondences with certain entries in the genre, than it does the rather less lauded wave of non-exploitation pictures which proved particularly popular in Italy and Japan throughout the 1970s. So films like The Nun and the Devil from 1973 or School of the Holy Beast from 1974, Behind Convent Walls from 1978, Eurogrot Guru Jess Franco's Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun from 1977. Films which owe as much to the nun, uh, by the aforementioned Diderot, writing in the 18th century, as they do to Black Narcissus or The Devils. They're not especially well thought of, but James Newton makes a very convincing case for them in an article entitled Nonsploitation, The Forgotten Cycle, which I'll link to on the website. Personally, I wouldn't say that it has been forgotten particularly, but I guess Newton is talking about its place within academic discourse, where it does tend to be overlooked. Even in those corners of academic discourse, concerned primarily with exploitation cycles. But the best of these films, he writes, quote, use the experience of women thrown together in the hostile and confined space of the convent to explore themes such as religious zealotry and sexual and social oppression. In a similar way that the base elements of the spaghetti western can be focused upon and used to conflate all films of the genre and disguise each film's subtleties, 
it could be tempting to discuss the non-sploitation cycle as merely a barrage of images of female masturbation, lesbianism, the unrolling of stockings, nude floggings, and conspicuously sexual torture. But, as with the Spaghetti Western, the lower order of the films in the cycle may fall prey to these basic criticisms, but by nature of the binary clashes they contain, conflicts of order and disorder, the feminine against the masculine, church or state against the individual, they all have something vital to say. Many of the films go beyond the pornographic to explicitly address themes of anti-capitalist politics, feminism and the historical treatment of women, and sexuality and its necessity to the human spirit." Unquote. At least some of that, I would say, is applicable to visions of ecstasy. Uh, this Teresa is a woman tormented by her own sexuality. A sexuality given free reign only in the throes of the kinds of deliriums depicted in Wingrove's film, where the restrictive tendrils of repressive authorities and misogynistic institutions and ideologies cannot reach, and where Teresa's unyielding hatred of her own body, as communicated endlessly throughout her writings, gives way to an enchanted fascination with the same. But, as I said, as accomplished a piece of work as it is, as someone who has found Teresa's writings hugely inspiring at different points in my life, I think that Visions of Ecstasy does quite a disservice to Teresa by reducing what is uncontrollably electric and electrifying and sometimes terrifying about her writings to a rather mundane bit of fumbling about in the knack. In his famous pronouncement on Bernini's 17th century masterpiece, Ecstasy of St. Teresa, Lacan famously asserted that you need but go to Rome and see the statue by Bernini to immediately understand that she's coming. There's no doubt about it. What is she getting off on? It is clear that the essential testimony of the mystics consists in saying that they experience it, but know nothing of it. What they know nothing of, uh, according to Lacan, and I know that this too is extremely reductive, I have friends who would give me a good hiding for simplifying this to such an extent, is an ecstasy explicitly gendered feminine. An ecstasy beyond the phallus, beyond, we might say, the cloud of knowing. Beyond, in other words, all of the things that Nigel Wingrove's imaginings threaten to bind it to. But there are films, uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about the various biopics that have been produced over the years, which I think do engage with Teresa and with other martyr-mad mystics of similar stock, uh, such as Julian of Norwich, for example, to far more profound and stimulating ends. I can think of two relatively recent German films that do exactly that. One is the phenomenal Stations of the Cross from 2014, 
which I will definitely be returning to in a future episode, and the other is Hans Christian Schmidt's Requiem from 2006, which takes its inspiration from the same real-life tragedy that inspired the previous year's rather effective, but ultimately quite grotesque, uh, Hollywood possession horror come courtroom drama, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I can recommend both Stations of the Cross and Requiem with no reservations whatsoever. Wingrove produced another non-splitation picture in 2000, uh, this time a feature-length effort entitled Sacred Flesh, in which, again, a nun, a mother superior, in fact, wrestles, as did his Teresa, with her sexuality and with her calling, and in which fantasy and reality are forever pulling and teasing and tearing at one another. She doesn't mount Jesus at any point, but she does have some lengthy discussions with Mary Magdalene, uh, these interludes punctuating a series of salacious scenes of the sort familiar to anyone with even a passing awareness of the genre. Sacred Flesh did not encounter anything like the enmity which greeted visions of ecstasy and largely disappeared of its own volition shortly after release. The blasphemy laws under which visions of ecstasy had been suppressed were finally abolished in 2008, and by 2012, the film had been issued on DVD with an 18 certificate and with Sacred Flesh included as a bonus feature. And that is where we will leave things for now. I'm Aaron McMullen. This has been Mondo Christ Almighty. If you've enjoyed the podcast and you're using sites that allow you to follow or subscribe, please do so. Uh, new episodes are uploaded every other Friday, more or less. You can follow me on Twitter at MondoChrist. You can email me at MondoChristAlmighty at gmail.com. And you can keep an eye on the website MondoChristAlmighty.com where I publish in tandem with the release of each episode a series of bibliographies, links, filmographies, so on and so forth. Also, uh, if you know someone who you think would enjoy the podcast, please do nudge them towards it. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Raise and go.